This episode is brought to you by DailyDrip.com. Daily Drip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for Daily Drip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elixir? How about Elm? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is that it only takes 5 minutes a day. Use coupon code GEEKERY to save $5 on your first month and make learning a part of your daily routine with DailyDrip.com. This episode is sponsored by Clubhouse, project management tools for software teams. Built by proud functional programmers, Clubhouse is used by software engineering organizations around the world and is an ideal planning tool for teams that want to see the big picture. Visit clubhouse.io geekery to sign up for a free trial and a $50 credit. Clubhouse. Dream. Develop. Deploy. Projects and conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. PolyConf 2016 will be taking place from the 30th of June through the 2nd of July. Confirmed speakers include Douglas Scrockford, Distinguished Architect at PayPal and Jason Discoverer, Julia Evans, Machine Learning Expert at Stripe, Guy Bedford, JSPM Creator, and Andreas Rumpf, NIM Language Creator. Early bird tickets are on sale and cost only €192, but only until June 16th, and listeners to the podcast can email hello at polyconf.com and they will give you a personal discount. Visit polyconf.com to keep updated, sign up for newsletter updates, and to register. Curiana is taking place July 18th and 19th in Rome. Curiana is a rare event where academic minds responsible for concepts and tools now invaluable to everyday software development, like functional programming, or generics in Java, collide with the movers and shakers in industry that are building next-generation systems and developing software engineering practices central to our entire industry. Visit curry-on.org to find out more and to register, and your ticket is good for all the European Conference of Object-Oriented Programming as well. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona September 5th to the 9th. It will be comprised of two main blocks with a gap day in between. You can check out 2016.fullstackfest.com to find out more. The Erling User Conference is coming up in Stockholm, Sweden. The conference will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of September with tutorials on the 7th and training running the 6th through the 16th of September. With keynotes by Fred Herbert and Simon Payton-Jones, a fireside chat with Jane Wallerund and the Erling co-inventors Mike Williams, Joe Armstrong, and Robert Verding, and the rest of the speaker lineup can be found on their website. All attendees are also entitled to participate in a complimentary tutorials on the 7th of September, sponsored by Ericsson and Kista. Early bird tickets are available, and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKERY10. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The Unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And if you know of any conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Andreas Stefik. Andreas, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? 
Yeah, hi. Thanks for inviting me, Proctor. As you said, my name is Andrea Stefik. I'm an assistant professor of computer science at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And my primary work is on human factors of programming languages, or how does the design of programming languages in practice impact a variety of different kinds of people? And I had heard you on a previous podcast of Ruby Rogues, so I'll include links for people to check out that episode for anybody who wants to hear it, but it's a couple years old and things have evolved. And then Jessica Kerr also said, yes, you definitely should get him on to talk about some of the research he's doing. So yeah. well, Jessica's very kind. She's a very nice person. So. so that's exactly why I wanted to get you on. So can you give an overview of what your human side of the programming entails at a high level? And then we'll dig in from there. Yeah, sure. So for a long time in the field of programming languages, I think that many people thought that there was a significant research arm that was investigating the impact of programming languages on people, right? So people, I think, I think many, many developers, many academics even sort of assumed that the programming language communities were gathering evidence on many of the issues that all of us care about. What is better, static or dynamic typing? What's the impact of syntax? On whom? What about these block languages? What about the aspects of functional programming or aspects of object-oriented programming or inheritance or all these things? But in fact, it turns out that this isn't true. The programming language communities have actually systemically not gathered evidence over their 50- or 60-year period. In fact, probably the most seminal result in this whole evidence-gathering issue came out actually last December. So past the Ruby Rogues podcast for sure, by a really amazing scholar in Finland named um, Antti Johani Kajanaho. And Antti Johani found something really fascinating. He basically went through the entire academic literature, paper by paper, for like 60 years, from something like 1950-ish to 2012. And he found, in fact, that the program language communities have not gathered systematic and reliable human factors evidence for their entire academic history, notably showing that there was only 22 reliable experiments in that entire time. Now, this is weird. And the reason this is weird is because in most mature scientific disciplines, at least when it's an important issue, like programming languages are important because they run our nuclear reactors, because they're, it's expensive to hire developers. I mean, there's many reasons. But in mature scientific fields, like fields like medicine or areas where there's also significant consequences in medicine, death, or serious bodily harm. This is really unusual. So for example, between 1990 and 2001, to contrast with what has gone on in programming languages, there was 114,850 citations that included randomized controlled trials, basically a certain experimental style that is designed to be rigorous and reliable, or at least as best as, as best as it can be. So to put this in contrast with language design, it's 22 to a certain degree versus these very large numbers of reliable experiments in the field. So that's a rough overview. <laughs> and that was shocking when I first heard about it on that episode. Actually, that that came out last December, this result. So what we had found previously was that the evidence standard was poor at many places. But this number, 22, this is the entire academic history in the field of programming languages, which when even, even though I knew that the evidence standard was poor, when I heard that the number was actually 22 in the entire history, I was blown away. I had no idea that it was that low 
uh, in terms of the amount of papers. I mean, 22. I have a friend in the computers, in, not in computer science education, in the education department uh, that actually ran 22 experiments last year on his own. And I wasn't getting at that. Yes, that number is shockingly low. But I meant even before that, when it was just here's low, we hear about all these quote unquote studies and research that happens. And I guess that's usually around things like data structures or is this stuff even possible without it being the human factor side? And again, you get all these papers about and articles from IEEE and ACM and all these other things, but it's shocking to realize that all this stuff is out there isn't necessarily based in actual studies and science. It's ad hoc gut feeling write-ups or anecdotal of some small number of teams, right? Yeah, so a number of things. So the way that Auntie Jahani classifies things is by a number of different kinds of methodologies. 22 is the strictest. It's the one that has been used in other fields for about a century or so, which is randomized controlled trials. Well, technically, randomized controlled trials started really being practiced in medicine after the 1950s. But we've known about the standards for a long time. And the first one that was sort of in the ballpark was in Germany in, I think, 1835 on homeopathy, believe it or not. And not surprisingly, it found homeopathy wasn't that helpful. But the point is that yeah, that's the strictest standard, but there are other papers that exist that sort of have worse methodology. So, for example, you can find papers that don't have a control group or that didn't really take exact measurements or that just asked a couple of friends whether they liked a feature or stuff like that. But the problem is it's hard to know whether that work is actually reliable, right? So, like, for example, if I went and asked a couple of my friends whether they thought programming paradigm X was beneficial and seven of my friends said, yes, is that scientifically reliable? Or is that just what seven of my buddies thought, right? It's sort of a, it's a funny thing. You usually don't see these kinds of evidence standards in other fields. They're much stronger than that. But in programming languages with human factors, it seems to be the norm. And getting back into these scientific standards, are those 22 just the, they've got the things like the control group, or have they actually been reproduced and found to be verified or unverified at this point? They're unverified. And the reason that they're unverified is because they're the only ones that exist. And so there can't be replications because there isn't any more studies. Now, I think that this is changing. I think that that study only documented up till 2012. And since that time, there's been a groundswell of authors that have sort of looked very hard at what the programming language communities are doing. And they've asked themselves, well, is this right scientifically? Like, is this valid? Is this sensible? And a lot of us have come to the conclusion that the answer is no. And so we've decided to take upon ourselves running experiments that we hope at least that others can replicate. And those studies, especially on syntax and static versus dynamic typing, actually have been replicated multiple times. And we're, we're seeing the same answers pretty much every time now, whenever we run these experiments different countries, different conditions, different types of rules, but we seem to be getting the same answer, which from a scientific perspective, looks like it's in the ballpark, which is good. So how do you get into this field of study? Was this something you knew you wanted to do, or was this something you came in through a normal computer science background where you're given just, here's a bunch of data structures, here's some rough project management stuff, here's a couple of programming languages, and then you 
came in or was this something, what attracted you and got you motivated into this field of study and actually studying the human factors of software? And what did that process look like as you kind of came up through the ranks? So actually, there's two people that started really investigating human factors of programming languages at about the same time, independently. One of them was me, and I'll tell you that in just a second. But another is my friend, uh, who eventually became my friend, Stefan Hanneberg in Germany, who actually came to the same conclusions for completely different reasons in another country. But I can get to that in a second. But in my case, I kind of fell into it accidentally. So what happened was in about 10 years ago, I was investigating technologies to use sound for programming. And it was just kind of a fun project I was working on. I wasn't super serious about it. I was just sort of playing around with the use of sound because I thought it was interesting. But when I thought about it, I came to the conclusion that if I wanted to use sound technologies for programming, the group that could in all likelihood benefit the most from such technology is probably blind individuals. And so I started investigating how do people that are blind or visually impaired write technologies that can benefit themselves? You know, like if you're a child and you're 15 or 16 years old, and you want to invent something, and you're blind, how do you do that? So I started collaborating with the blind community and developing technologies to try to make programming easier for them. And we did all sorts of stuff, like talking debuggers, little talking editor hints, different kinds of navigation tools. I mean, all sorts of stuff that we thought might at least potentially be easier for that group. But the thing was, One of the things that really bugged me is that at the time we were having people use tools like C and having them use that in audio. And it's actually really hard. I mean, you know, even just a loop might be something like for left paren, int i equals zero, semicolon, i less than 10, semicolon, i plus plus, right paren, left brace, which as a programmer doesn't bother me that much because I can just look at it and I very instantly know what it means. But when I listen to that with a 15-year-old blind child listening to that through audio, it became really apparent that I wasn't sure what the evidence was, why that was designed that way in the first place. And so we started looking and we tried to find academic papers that would indicate why choose the word for, why have those parens there, why have the semicolons, why does a for loop have those three pieces? Maybe two would be good enough for humans. Maybe we want other stuff. Maybe with while loops, they should have a different structure. And we started doing simple things like just running little surveys and stuff. But then we ran our first survey and it indicated that of the least intuitive word choices that are for um, uh, programming loops are the words for, while, and for each in that order. And we're like, that's odd because why would it be the case that they were considered really unintuitive by people if they're exactly the right thing that language designers should have been using in the first place? So then we started investigating ways to measure people's performance. And so we started conducting these studies on how people that are novices understand syntax. Now, we were doing other stuff at the time, too. But when we did those, one of the results we found pretty quickly was that if you have novices use a programming language, that in fact, compared to C-style syntax, some languages do no better than a programming language designed completely randomly, like we randomly generated keywords and symbols and stuff like that from the ASCII table with single characters. So like a equals equals could be a right slash or a the four could be a pound or whatever it is, right? And when we noticed that, we were like, no, wait a minute. 
that's really odd too. Why would it be that if these languages was, were designed with such a good evidence standard, why would it be the case that we're seeing novices do no better than one we randomly generated? It's sort of like the idea of placebo in medicine. And after that point, we started then investigating, well, what kind of evidence do they really have? And then published some papers on that until eventually Antti Jahani came out with his big breakthrough uh, dissertation. And sort of that's, uh, that's the story. <laughs> For what I don't know if that's an interesting story, but that's the story. So it sounds interesting to me, and I would think it'd be interesting to the list other listeners as well. For the fact that we have all these assumptions, we go out and have had our experience and say, no, this is so much better because of X, Y, or Z. But it's not necessarily that's just gut feel. That's just potentially intuition. Maybe it's years of scars that. It's not actually better, but we've just conditioned ourselves to behave this way just because if we've done this, we've done this, we've done this, and it hurts every single time, we're averse to that and have become, or we've just become numb to the pain of doing something. And so we've built up those calluses and can't actually recognize that these things aren't good. These things aren't painful because we're just, it's become chronic pain versus acute. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to get you on was a lot of these assumptions, a lot of these things we tell, whether it's object-oriented programming or functional programming or whatever it is as we go through things like, hey, five-line methods, four-line methods, these are better. These are inherently better because of X, Y, or Z. They're simpler. Are They seem simpler, but are they really? And a lot of that stuff. So what are some of the things you started with? You started with this language where you said, hey, we're just going to put random symbols in here and this is going to be just a random programming language. But what other things have you gone from that as a starting point to start to experiment? You mentioned some of the stuff with static versus dynamic types and what does the landscape now look like? And we can dig into some of the individual things that have been found after we cover what the landscape has looked like in the past couple of years that you've said has really started taking off. Yeah, so there's a number of areas that have been analyzed in the last few years and I th that I think people are making progress on. There's been quite a few studies, I want to say around 12-ish, but I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, on the static versus dynamic typing debate. And there's also a number of studies that have been done under different methodologies by independent research groups that, even though they don't have the same methodology, they seem to hint in the same direction, which is good, because you want independent people to conduct either the same experiment or experiments under different ways to see if they agree or disagree. That's good. There's been a number of studies increasingly on syntax and compiler errors. And this is interesting because they've been done for both novices and professionals, and they both find issues, which is fascinating. I didn't expect that. And there's some interest right now in concurrent systems, which I think that, that research, like a Chris Rossbach stuff out of Texas, or there's a couple other authors too is really fascinating to say the least. This is issues like software transactional memory versus threading and locks or other, other procedures. We just finished ourselves, although I haven't put the study up online yet, uh, but a master's thesis on process-oriented programming. So this is sort of like, they use it on things like Google Go, but it was actually used a lot in the transputers in the late 80s and such. But it's also used in children's toys, believe it or not. So like uh, the programming language Alice out of Carnegie Mellon actually uses the same technique. And it turns out there's some pros and cons with it. But so that stuff is fascinating. There's a number of studies on inheritance. 
especially stuff from the 80s. However, that work is somewhat inconclusive and the studies seem to disagree with each other. So I think the jury's out as to what actually we know about inheritance. We, we don't know much, unfortunately. For example, we don't know whether single versus mix-in versus uh, multiple or any of those issues are a total mystery right now. We conducted a study recently on lambda expressions with somewhat mixed results. I can tell you about that if you want. But there's very little known about functional programming in general. In fact, specifically, to put it in perspective, as part of our last paper, we actually went through the entire history of the top academic conference for functional programming, which is the International Conference on Functional Programming. And the number of reliable empirical studies that they've conducted in their entire history is actually zero. Think about that. Zero. And so the funny thing here is there's a number of areas where people have started to make progress. Like I said, type systems, generics, stuff like that. People are starting to do it with different kinds of methodologies, which is wonderful. And we, so we get to see whether they agree or don't. And I can tell you about that. Uh, but at the same time, there's still pockets of computer science that are systemically not using the scientific method to uh, study these issues. It's become sort of living in the past in my, from my perspective, I think. So anyway, does that give you a rough overview? I think that's good. So I guess we'll start with one of the big debates across languages that you mentioned was the static versus dynamic. And people talk about, well, I feel I can get stuff out faster if I'm in a dynamic language because I can experiment and modify more. Or if I'm in a static language, I have the greatness for maintainability and it makes it more robust because I actually have to think about things up front. So what have some of those studies found about static versus dynamic? Because we seem to be in an age of programming languages where people are going off and creating them. So it seems like we should at least know that this stuff is out there when we decide about our programming language, if we can take advantage of it. Yeah. So, okay, great question. And the static versus dynamic debate is the debate that the most is known about, I would say, so far. It has the most number of experiments that are considered reliable by standard methodologies and other disciplines. By the way, before I go into that, I should say really quickly what that means to be a reliable methodology, just so people know. So very quickly, in the 1800s and 1900s, really actually starting with the late 1700s with Benjamin Franklin's work on mesmerism or other sort of like pseudoscience-y type things, scientists in other fields started getting really skeptical of the types of things that medical practitioners were claiming. And you can imagine why, because people were being hurt, being killed from these sort of pseudoscience ideas like homeopathy or mesmerism or, you know, junk science like that. And so in other fields or psychology, biology, medicine, we started seeing experiments that started to use certain kinds of methodologies that removed the individual experimenter from making the decisions and tried to make stuff standard across experimental groups, like different groups, that way that you get a exact measurement that different people can replicate. And so the most common technique today for this, the one that's been the most vetted by the scientific community at large is called the randomized controlled trial. And the reason why it's considered so good is because, even though it's not perfect, is because randomized controlled trials do a couple really basic things. Number one is they have a control group. So if you want to compare, if you want to say functional programming is good or bad, then you have to immediately ask yourself, compared to what? And a control group is a way that you do that. And scientists in other fields, when they use things like control groups, 
it protects against stuff. Like, for example, it protects against fraud. For example, you might just be lying that you believe one particular feature is better than another. And it also protects against just wrongness. So sort of like if you want to argue something is better, then you always have to ask for what context. And it's the same in many other fields in biology, psychology, medicine, et cetera. One reason that they also added in the randomized part of randomized controlled trials is largely because of fraud. And that was especially, you started seeing it in the late 1800s, early 1900s in psychology. And the reason you saw it there is because people were making claims about being psychic or, you know, talking to the dead or other sort of wacky nonsense that uh, most scientists generally don't believe in. And one way that they tested that is they'd use like card sorting or things like that, randomness, and they'd try to trick people to see whether or not they're actually being fraudulent or lying or simply just being wrong. So in terms of the static versus dynamic typing debate, when I say that it meets the most reliable evidence standards, what I mean is, is that it follows conventions that other fields have used for a long time, not just computer science, in fact, much stronger than computer science, because it both runs experiments and it replicates them. And that's, that's really key, really key. So what do we know? Well, it turns out that the static versus dynamic debate has a relatively clear answer. And the clear answer is that once you gain a little bit of experience with programming, and I'll get to what that means in a second, static typing actually does benefit human beings. And it explains a lot of the variance, and we know why. So here's what it is. If you take a language like Groovy, and you can either uh, compare that to Java, where you can just remove the types, basically. That's an example of where you can conduct a test and you can basically have the type annotations or not. Now, there's other ways that it's been tested, but it's just an example. In a case like that, what we find is that people that use static typing have a statistically significant increase in their speed to write correct code to an API, right? So they're using an API and they can write that more quickly than uh, using dynamic typing. And we have a pretty good sense as to why that occurs. If you videotape developers while they're doing this, what you see is that if they use dynamic typing, they don't know what to actually pass to a function. And so what happens is they go and flip files, which we've measured very exactly. They flip files to other parts of the API. They look at the method and read the code, and then they try to decide what to pass to that method. And it turns out if you pull out that time in the videotapes that they're off searching for that stuff, it matches the difference in static versus dynamic typing quite well. And so it's the most plausible candidate as for why, a theory as to why static typing does better for human beings. But there's one wrinkle here, and that is that if you look at studies using what's called token accuracy mapping, it's basically a way of analyzing syntactic accuracy for people. In token accuracy map studies, what you find is that novices have difficulty with type annotations, right? And there's two studies that I usually like to cite with this. One is one of my own, which is a token accuracy map study showing that novices have trouble, especially on function bind points, and also a little bit less, but some difficulty on the inside of functions, depending upon where it is in the scope of a program. But interestingly, there's a really fascinating paper by a fellow named Neil Brown in the UK, who's well known for his work on a tool called BlueJay. And they tracked 37 million compiler errors for novices, so huge, huge sample sizes. And they found that actually type errors 
tend to stop by around like nine to 12-ish months or so. It looks like about nine from the graphs, but it's a little bit fuzzy. So what that tells us is that most of the studies on static versus dynamic typing, by around year three or so of an academic computer science program, you see a very large benefit for having static typing. However, at the very beginning of a computer science program, when you're just an initial learner, you see a small deficit, but it's quite small. So it's just a couple percent, and it goes away within a short amount of time. That's the rough overview of what the various studies show as a whole. And have those looked at the, you were talking about the binding points and some of the other stuff. Was that stuff around, it's statically typed, but it can be implicitly determined or explicitly declared kind of thing where if you look at a Java, you have to declare every type at every single point versus some of the other static languages like Haskell or F sharp or the ML families where it's, you can declare some of the stuff and then it'll pick it up and recognize it as it flows through the software. And it says, okay, when I don't know, or at your function level, you declare it, but inside your function blocks, have they gotten down to that level or is that still part of the research that's going on? I would say that that's still part of the research, but I think that we're probably pretty close to an answer on it. So specifically, there was one paper done at the International Conference on Software Engineering, which uh, is on my website. You can grab it. And one of the in that particular study we did was called a two by two factorial design. And all that means in just plain layman's English for anybody that's listening that isn't an experimenter is that you've got one group where the control condition is static versus dynamic typing, where the conditions are that. The other condition in this particular case was whether you had documentation or not. Now, think about this. In the group that had documentation, that means there was a group that had dynamic typing. There was no type annotations in there. However, the documentation said what the type was. So hypothetically, it's a it's not exactly the situation, but it's the situation where you could hypothetically just look up and see what the type is. But it turns out, in fact, that the static versus dynamic debate actually still gets the same effect size and the same result in that studies as it does in the others. However, that doesn't still completely answer your question because some of these languages like that have very strong type inference rules I know that there's a study that's been conducted on it that's not published yet. I wasn't involved in that particular one, but I actually don't recall the result. I think it was the same, but I don't want to speak for it because I haven't actually read the paper yet. I've just talked to the author about it. So my gut feeling is that the result from what I know so far is going to be the same. And the reason is because it looks like developers not having the actual annotation in that method declaration block is one of the primary causes of the difference. But we don't know for sure yet. And I think that we should find out more once that study is published and peer reviewed. But it's good to note that it is going on and still being looked at for a lot of these arguments. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that a lot of the people that care about this issue, including myself, but not just me, We really, at the end of the day, what we want is we want an answer to these questions for where it is answerable. You know, we want the, we want the research to be scientifically replicable. We want when other independent research groups run a study, we want to get the same answer in our own labs. When people you publish papers at different venues, we want those papers to follow rigorous evidence guidelines, you know, the types of things you would expect in science. And so a lot of us are really promoting and pushing that sort of agenda right now because we want science to improve. That's part of the process. So it's self-correcting eventually after six years. <laughs> or at least if you 
don't know the answer, you know you don't know the answer, and that <laughs> any answers that are given are not based in scientific research, but potentially gut feel or just made up because someone's trying to make a case for it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and the, the the honest truth too is that when you really look back at the initial languages, like take somebody like Brian Kernighan or something, right? Brian, amazing, amazing language designer, totally changed the landscape of the planet. I mean, uh, by any stretch. Now, at the time, you might be able to make the argument that they could have or should have or something gathered evidence. But when you really think about it, how could they have? I mean, they were really trying to just even figure out how to invent such a technology. But the thing is, that was a long time ago now. So back in the day, when languages were first being designed, it was really understandable that a lot of this kind of work, the human factors stuff, didn't go on. But today, to a certain extent, we have the luxury of being able to slow down a bit and ask ourselves, hey, if programming languages still exist in 50 years, shouldn't we like take care of some of these sciencey problems and make sure that it is reliable and valid and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah. And I was going to go off on a different, slightly different track about the compilation stuff that you talked about, but you mentioned some of this early language design. Mm. And I'd like to kind of talk about, has there been any studies on some of the language design and what that means as far as you were talking about token replacement, but has there been anything on number of tokens and more of the inherent complexity of the language based off number of data types or other variations of that things thinking back like Lisp. When Lisp came out, again, it came out early on without this research, but if you look at it, it is a very simple language syntactically. Now it may or may not be easy to get and understand just due to a level of familiarity versus a complex language that is hard to parse, tricky to parse, things like has a bunch of variations like a C C or evolution of a C++ or Objective-C or any of these other languages or Ruby where it's inherently a more complex language because it tries to give you flexi more flexibility. Has any studies been done about things like that with the tokens and number of tokens and concepts that are inherent to the language as the building blocks of a language? So to a certain degree, yes, but to a certain degree, no, as well. So the most, the technique that I think we've used the most to analyze this sort of issue is called token accuracy mapping. And I'll give you a quick overview of how it works, just so that you know. And then I'll tell you sort of the, the limitations and what we sort of have with it uh, so far. Specifically, the, what token accuracy mapping is, is it's a way that you can break up what are called worked examples. This is a, a term I don't know if it was coined by, but I, it's used a lot in the computer science education community by a, a scholar named Brianna Morrison and also Mark Guzdow, the two really fantastic researchers in that area. And what happens basically is you give people like small examples and then you have them basically code to some kind of a specification, right? And it's, it's a simple idea. It's like, you know, an, a, a programming problem on an exam or coming into work and writing a method or a couple methods or something like that. It's not necessarily bound to be something small or simple. It's bound to just, but on the other hand, usually in experiments, you only have a limited amount of time. So that's reality. So what happens is once you get the code back that an individual wrote, you break it up into lexemes. And then you run it through a set of algorithms. Right now we're using one called the Neumann-Wuchs algorithm, which comes from genetics. But there are actually other techniques you can use as well. 
And basically what it does is it standardizes the result of the code across individuals. And that allows you to predict very accurately and very replicably, so far as we can tell, how well particular tokens or words do in a programming language. So for example, if I look at surveys, I mentioned a survey on the word choice of for and while and for each in a programming language, and I said that they're considered subjectively to be less intuitive. Well, it turns out this is not some idle subjective thing. If you actually run token accuracy map experiments, you find that it comes to the same conclusion. Notably, if you use the word repeat in a loop compared to the use for, it about triples the number, the accuracy rate for that particular token, which you can determine by a token accuracy map experiment. And you see the same thing across other kinds of tokens as well. So for example, if you have equals versus equals equals, well, it turns out equals equals for novices has an eightfold decrease, literally 800% decrease in the token accuracy map score for that particular token. But you can pull these apart when you look at token accuracy mapping, you can pull this apart for a number of languages and we have. So for example, Ruby makes all sorts of really good decisions and it impacted the design of our own programming language, Quorum, quite a bit because they made a number of decisions that we hadn't that they did better on in the studies. Other languages make some good decisions too. Python has some good and some bad. And Perl has some good and some bad, as does Java and uh, other languages. And so what I think the result is going to be, eventually, is that as people start to conduct token accuracy map experiments or other kinds of experiments across languages, what they'll probably find is that since we didn't use a lot of evidence for a very long time, people really didn't know what words, phrases, symbols, combinations of them, or things like that mattered. And as such, different languages ended up getting it wrong in their own unique ways while they were playing around. But now that we're going back and taking a look and using very exact methodologies to try to reproduce results on this, what we're finding is that we, in many cases, we can pick apart what's good and what's bad across groups, and we can incorporate it into programming languages um, to try to make a difference. That's why on the Quorum Project, a programming language that we've designed in the lab, we use extensive token accuracy map data to try to hone the language over time and to increase the syntactic understandability or accuracy or whatever of the language. Now, that doesn't mean that it's perfect right now. And as we design new features for the language, we always token accuracy map at first to try to figure out how the particular design we were thinking of might impact people in practice. We just finished an experiment on this in regard to concurrency, which one of my PhD students did um, for token accuracy maps of concurrent applications. So I think that there's a lot we don't know about this area, but I think that we have a good start on the techniques for how we can explore it. And there's a number of proof of concept studies that show particular areas, which I think others should be able to expand on quite easily. That's all pretty interesting because that's one of the things you hear about is this language is so much simpler. It's better for beginners or whatever, or it's the easier language to make for a transition because now you don't have to think about all the different syntax. You can just think about the different semantics of functional programming versus a language syntax as well and, and all those changes. So I wanted to see what was out there regarding that. And then circling back to the compiler messages, what have you found about some of the compiler messages in some of these studies as you look and watch and kind of do a meta evaluation to know what kind of stuff you need to fold back in for your work. 
Oh, great question. So there's a number of real, I actually don't do these kind of studies myself, but there's a number of other research groups that have. That sounds bad, maybe, but it's actually a really good thing because they're independent research groups. And so when we do our studies, I can check my assumptions about our own science by looking at the compiler error data other people have gathered to try to figure out, do they get the same answer or do they get a different answer? And if there is a difference, why and what do we need to change? But so there's a number of really great papers. One is, I mentioned earlier, Neil Brown's data on the Blue Jay project out of the UK. That data is fantastic and amazing. I mean, to say the least, we're talking the last paper published was 37 million errors and stuff like that. There's a fellow named Jamie Spacco, uh, S-P-A-C-C-O in Illinois. They have some great data that's coming out across multiple programming languages, which is really neat, whereas Neil Brown's data is only um, uh, only Java, which is still useful. There's a good paper on compiler error data that came out of the small workshop called Plateau, uh, which is an academic workshop um, that's part of the Splash community. It's like a, it's just a programming language conference. And that particular data was on Python. They found basically the same result that Neil Brown did, but in that language. There's some excellent work by Andy Coe out of University of Washington and Margaret Burnett on a tool that they called Gidget. Their hypothesis was really interesting. It was basically, if I'm paraphrasing, that compiler error messages should be a little bit more personified. Like, for example, they need to, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm bu- going to butcher the result, but if I recall, and Andy's going to yell at me later, later, possibly, but that's okay. If I recall correctly, it's something like if the error messages are personified more, it impacts self-efficacy. So it's sort of like your self-confidence, which to a certain extent makes sense. But in Neil Brown's data, I think the most fascinating thing is that they categorize messages or errors by the type of thing that people screw up, right? So like, for example, you might screw up a particular token, you might screw up a particular function call or something like that. And it turns out that Neil's data actually matches our token accuracy map data really well. So the types of errors that token accuracy mapping identifies at the small scale in Java matches almost exactly to the large-scale data done in the field that Neil Brown gathers. So in other words, we basically get the same answer. So yes, some studies are small, some studies are big, but these studies seem to agree on what they're finding. Now there's one last study I want to mention, which comes out of the ICSI community, the International Conference on Software Engineering. There was a really great study that some folks at Google did, I want to say like one to two years ago. And what they found is they basically wanted to identify the kinds of issues that their professional programmers had in regard to compilation. Now, you might think, well, these are pros. They never have they never have compiler problems or something, or at least I've heard people claim that before. But in fact, what Google showed is that that's really not the case. Google engineers have a variety of really significant problems when using languages like C++. And it turns out to be the case that a lot of these are related to things like module dependency issues. So like, you know, you've got a library and it connects to another library and you're, we've seen systems like this with Maven or stuff like that. And they're, sometimes they're kind of hard to use. And my impression from the paper is that those sort of systems are hard to use even for people that are professionals at Google as well. Now, of course, professionals do have different issues than novices do, but that's okay too, because ideally you want to gather data from all groups in order to try to make the data reflective for the most people possible. And I can think of just myself, some of those compiler er errors are when I'm editing code and all of a sudden I forget to drop 
I extra select a scope closing token for whatever it is, whether it's the closing parenthesis or closing uh, curly brace or an end statement, depending on what language it is. And all of a sudden it's like, I can't parse this file because I got to the end and we never close scope. And then you got to go back and figure out which corresponding closing token did I leave out somewhere in this file? Yeah. Uh, gee, I've never done that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I completely get it. Yeah, some of those studies are neat too. They tell us actually some things that I didn't expect at first, but now that I know the answer, it's it's more obvious. Like, for example, Paul Denny's data, there's a guy, and I think he's in New Zealand, named Paul Denny, and he does this great study on uh, compiler errors as well. And he found that semicolons, like people talk about, should you or should you not? It turns out that, in fact, this decision really doesn't matter at all. For novices, the use of a semicolon or not only makes up something like 3% of compiler errors. And oddly enough, our token accuracy map data, while it's a coincidence, has the same value. It's something like 3%. So it really doesn't matter at all. But nonetheless, it's interesting that like uh, sometimes these debates that have had for a while, like should we have semicolons or not, it turns out the evidence shows they don't even matter. Like they're just nonsense debates. You may as well leave the semicolons off if you can, but if you do, it really doesn't make any difference because they don't really impact people that much at all. So it's interesting. I think that for me, this is probably one of the most fun parts about the the evidence gathering that groups have been doing is that I'm consistently surprised at what the evidence ends up showing. And once it replicates, I feel like we're learning a lot more about how these tools should really be designed if we want to make things better for the community, the community of professionals, the community of novices. In the United States, programming has been pushed toward K through 12 education. So how do you handle like six-year-olds or 10-year-olds or 15-year-olds to try to make programming easier for them? So it's been really interesting on these even compiler error messages issues because they sometimes have pretty surprising stuff. It's fascinating to see what, what's happening. And then circling back around, you mentioned the single equals versus double equals as one of those tokens that throws people off and has a huge efficacy impact. And one of the things a lot of people in the functional programming community use as their hard selling point, and I know it's been done in the object-oriented community as well with value objects on that side, is immutability, is making sure that if you're going to have this thing, it doesn't change. And even going so far as to saying, we don't have variables, we have bindings, and those things can be bound once and don't change. And if you need to change it, you need to do this. And it becomes inherently more like what you learned in math. And so it's easier to translate into conceptually and cause fewer mistakes and make people coming in do this. And before the call, you mentioned there was some research on functional programming that was just done. But mm. does any of that stuff hold up? Or have there been any actual studies about that? Or is that all just gut feel, instinct? Maybe there's some truth to it, but it actually hasn't been hardened and studied in the fact that we have found this to hold true versus just people feeling better with it? Okay, so there's there's not much on functional programming. I think I mentioned uh, zero studies in ICFP, International Conference on Functional Programming. But on the two issues that you mentioned, one being immutability and another, there's one other on lambdas, which I'll tell you about, which I wrote that one. First on immutability. With immutability, we don't know much. There was one study that was just published out of the International Conference on Software Engineering. However, it was just a couple interviews. There was no control group, to my knowledge. There was no, no randomized controlled trial. 
And no, I, I don't know how you could replicate that study to see if you get the same answer. And I'm not really sure what the answer was because it was like interviews trying to peek out whether there's issues or something. So for immutability, I think we know nothing. It's an important issue that I'd like to know more about in terms of the human factors impact, but I don't think we know anything yet, unfortunately. In terms of functional programming, the other issue that we know something but not much about is on the use of Lambda expressions. Now, of course, Lambda expressions have been around for a long time since, I don't know, Church was 1934, I think, when he defined them, but I could have that date slightly off. And it turns out with Lambdas, people disagree a lot. So, for example, in 2013, I think, the people out of Java were arguing very heavily that Lambdas should be in JDK 8, and so they made all sorts of wonderful claims like it's the biggest change to the programming model ever since generics. And some people in academia argue very strongly for them. There are groups that have argued for lambdas for visual languages that are basically kind of like scratch, except with lambda expressions. If you look at developers in practice, like blog posts or stuff like that, people are all over the map on whether or not they're beneficial. Some people love them. Some people hate them. Some people argue they're good for debugging. Some people argue they're bad. Some people argue they're good for event-driven or not. I mean, the number of claims is truly staggering that people make on these things, both for and against. So we ran one study. Now you might say, yes, but we need 10,000 studies, and that is absolutely true. However, you have to run one at a time, and you want these studies to be done by independent research groups. So we started by running one. The one that we chose to do was we found a paper from 2006 on C++, which was looking to the future of C++ 11 at the time, which also includes the Lambdas. Now, if you look at the Lambda design in C++ 11, there's a lot of funny things. The syntax is sort of wacky, at least that's my interpretation. And it wasn't clear to us, what number one, whether they helped, like did Lambdas have a positive impact or not? And number two, compared to what? But the C++ designers at the time made the argument that they should be at least as good as iterators for some reason or another. And of course, the reasoning you can imagine is little mapping operations and stuff like that. So one of my PhD students named Merlin Usbeck, he ran an experiment comparing what they claimed in the paper, which was C++ lambdas versus a design of iterators. And we tested with a whole bunch of different kinds of people. So freshmen in college, sophomores, juniors, seniors in college, and we also tested with professional programmers that had 14 years on average of experience. And what we found was sort of funny. Number one is we found no benefit of the use of lambdas in this particular context across any group from professionals all the way down. And as you got less experience, we found that lambdas consistently crushed the novices compared to the use of iterators, even though they had not been taught either concept for both freshmen and sophomores, if I recall. Juniors and seniors had been taught both, and of course, professionals were highly familiar with lambdas or iterators in probably a bunch of languages. So the funny thing is, is what does that mean? I mean, first of all, people shouldn't misconstrue. It doesn't mean lambdas are like bad in some mystical sense. But what it means is that we need to be a little bit more cautious in the claims that we make about these designs and why they're getting integrated. So for example, it could be the case that lambdas have some benefits, like for event-driven programming or something like that, but there's never been a test, to my knowledge, to actually see if that's true and where. And a lot of the different languages have lambdas, but they subtly vary the syntax across these different kinds of projects. With C++, we found evidence that the syntax 
negatively impacted everyone, including professionals. However, they got past these little syntax errors pretty quickly, at least in the people with pro status. But for people that are lower level, it basically crushed them. They couldn't really do anything. Um, so I think that with functional programming, if anything that we've learned so far, it's that we know very little and that of the little that we know, we haven't seen many benefits so far, but I think a lot more tests are needed to try to hammer out where it's beneficial, if it is, and if it's beneficial, under what context. And since we know that it varies by experience group and this effect is very large, we know that we also need to compare people at different kinds of levels, not just professionals and not just novices, but everybody in between to try to figure out exactly who this impacts and why. And potentially even the tipping point of at what point does it make sense for the concept, I would guess, right? Yeah, well, so potentially. So this has a name. If you see a negative impact with novices and that event actually becomes positive later, that is a name. It's called expertise reversal. It's a formal theory in psychology, I think. Or no, I'm sorry, actually, I think it's in the field of education that they coined it. And expertise reversal exists in programming languages. We know it does with static versus dynamic typing. Static typing exhibits expertise reversal. You get a benefit later, but the benefit at the beginning, it's a mild negative impact. Very small, but a mild negative impact. And then later you benefit. With lambdas, the only test we have so far did not exhibit expertise reversal. In fact, we saw no benefit of lambdas across any task for any individual in the study. So what that means is that doesn't mean it isn't a case of expertise reversal. It just means that if it exists, it's either small or it doesn't happen when you're comparing those particular constructs, iterators versus lambdas. But it could exhibit itself for other things. Like, for example, I really like GDK8's concurrency model in terms of the way that they're using lambdas. It's possible that there's a benefit there, but it's just there's no tests. So we don't really know if expertise reversal exists there. Does that make any sense? That makes sense. And just to tease out some of this stuff, because we've been kind of dancing around some of this stuff, but the way you mentioned, we have one experiment about lambdas. People are potentially going to get up in arms and write you hate mail, as you mentioned on the Ruby what? Rogues podcast, where you had gotten some hate mail about your uh, your other program that you wrote. But if people <laughs> want to prove this out, it's kind of the fact that tease out, is it the concept of iterators versus lambdas, or is it the syntax of the iterators and the syntax of the lambdas because you're using the C-based language. And so maybe another experiment that can be run is tease those apart and say, okay, now here's iterators versus lambdas using a different style syntax. And now here's lambdas versus something else using a C style syntax versus a different syntax. And those kinds of permutations, right? Those would be where the experiments would start to get super valuable by having some of the differences and varying the different inherent variables that were in your test? You've got it exactly. That's exactly how a normal functioning scientific community works. Basically what happens is somebody runs an experiment and if there's not much known about it, then what people do is they replicate and vary. And so what happens is people can email us or whatever and they can ask us for our replication packets and stuff like that for experiments. And we can put those up. There's some limits depending on if you're an academic or not in terms of getting the raw data because we don't want people to reverse engineer who is in it and stuff, but that's another issue. 
But yeah, that's the idea. They basically can take a replication packet in a functioning scientific community, and then they can say, okay, this aspect of the experiment I don't think makes sense. I'm going to vary it, run it again, and then see if we get the same answer, and then go through the peer review process to see whether other scholars buy that argument, right? That's sort of how medicine and psychology and biology and physics and all these other areas work. In computer science, it hasn't been that way. It's sort of odd. People just sort of like, I mean, this this cracked me up. If you look at some of the programming language venues, not all of them, and I won't name names, but it is true, they explicitly allow anecdotes to be allowable under their peer review standard. That's crazy. That's simply not appropriate in a normal scientific community. However, like for example, the paper that I mentioned that showed this 114,850 studies in medicine that use randomized controlled trials, those authors actually explicitly say you shouldn't even subscribe to journals anymore that aren't using normal scientific methodologies. Well, ironically enough, the programming language communities are not using standard scientific methodologies. And, you know, a lot of us sort of feel like, what are they contributing? So at least that's my opinion, and I'm hardly alone. A lot of people in other areas of computer science have been saying the same thing for the last few years, especially after Auntie Jahani's 22 number came out. People are sort of getting increasingly bewildered at their evidence practices. So anyway, point being, you have it exactly right. The point isn't so much to say that you like it or don't. The point is to vary and change the experiments to run quite a few of them in independent research groups and then run all that through the peer review process to see whether or not it passes muster and other scientists buy into the argument. That's really the standard approach. So what does that take? You've got your research, you've got your PhD students. If people are interested in picking this up, because the FB community, from what I've seen, there's a strong contingent that has interest in academia. You've got these papers we love groups popping up. You've got people following, again, Wadler and Simon Peyton Jones and a number of these, John Hughes and a number of these other academics around some other functional programming languages and distributed systems and a bunch of research on CRDTs. You've got that stuff going on there. But how do people get involved and want to pick up and say, hey, yes, academia, industry, let's get together, let's meet, let's share some of this stuff and cross-pollinate and share our research back? What are some of the things that people can do if they're just listening to this that can help drive this forward? Okay, great question. So there's a couple ways. Now, I fully understand that most most software developers aren't going to pick up and run an experiment. And that's normal and expected. That's, that's okay. But there's a couple things that people can do. Number one is we always want people of different kinds of experience to participate in experiments. So one thing that you can do, as silly as it sounds, is you can email us and say that you'd be willing to participate in an experiment. And then we keep a list of people, but we also do our own sampling too, because we don't want to accidentally bias. But nonetheless, one thing that you can do is just if you're willing to spend an hour with us on a random topic that we can't tell you about in advance, then let us know. And then tell us about yourself. So we have demographic information. We can make sure we get reasonable people across a, a set of people in industry. There's a lot of developers in industry that already do that. And we sort of have a rich collection of people that we can call and ask and do pilot tests with and stuff like that already. But we always need more people. And the reason is because at the end of the day, we want a fair sample across a diverse set of communities 
And we want especially people that don't have an agenda. Like you're not like trying to prove X or Y. We just want you to be willing to participate in a test. So that's actually one thing, as silly as it sounds, one thing that people could do that would be really helpful is just to contact us and say, hey, I'm willing to participate in an experiment and I don't have an agenda and I'll do it on any topic. And then we put you on a list and then maybe we call and maybe we don't, right? So that's one thing. It's a really simple one. A second thing that people can do that I think might help is to track metrics on your team about how your team is using some of the products that they use and try to make it comparable across other companies or things like that. Now, that's harder to do because you may not want to put your metrics out there. There might be stuff about your Git repositories or something that you don't want to make public or whatever. But if your company is already open, things that you can do are related to the types of errors that your developers are making and stuff like that and trying to put it into a reasonably scientific form. That may not always pass peer review, but sometimes it's helpful for teams like mine because we go off and read a lot of what companies and blogs and stuff like that have actually been doing to try to figure out what people in industry think is are the problems. Because I take that really seriously because, I mean, industry ultimately pays the most amount of money for developers, and we want that time to be used wisely because it's expensive. And so it makes sense for a developers to do stuff like that if they can. And as a final thing, I think one thing that would be good is if nothing else, the community would be, I think it would be great if people in software engineering or other communities start educating themselves on the standards of evidence used in most fields so that they can speak about and understand when people talking about programming languages are being scientific and when they're just full of crap, right? So for example, read some articles on the different kinds of methodologies in medicine and how they've impacted people over time and what their pros and cons are. Read some materials on experimental design so you can have some basic background and stats and stuff like that. It's interesting anyway. I mean, the history of medicine is completely fascinating. I mean, there were times in history where doctors were killing women because they refused to wash their hands, which is abhorrent, or People were claiming with homeopathy that water would magically cure you. I mean, it's the stuff people believed was insane, but for some reason it passed muster in academic communities for their day. So by doing educating yourself on that, it makes it possible for everyone to have a more coherent conversation. And in other words, instead of sending us hate mail, which doesn't happen as much today as it used to, thank goodness, people could instead have an informed conversation about the pros and cons of various kinds of evidence gathering and try to really tease out the issues when language designers do or more normally do not gather stuff. Those are three things. But my assumption here is that this process of changing programming languages to be more usable for people is probably going to take a long time. If it took my entire academic career to make progress, it wouldn't surprise me that much. Those all sound like great tips, great things for people to do. And one of the reasons I ask is, from my understanding of science, there has always been a strong citizen science aspect of science, where it's not just the people in the labs, but people are going out on behalf of the researchers to go help verify and take notes of things you get, the things like bird watchers, where people will go out and go track birds and watch their migratory patterns and then share that and report it back with the scientist or with academia or whoever, and it becomes a case for some of these meta-studies, at least, 
so you can then say, okay, well, we've looked at these meta studies. What stuff do we need to dig in? So that was part of the things was what, and you mentioned looking at the Git repos and maybe severity one versus two defects based off your language. So that's why I was wanting to try and just figure out and give people inspiration that says, hey, some of this appeals to me. Software is eating the world. We now have the big things for serious consequences, as you said, with nuclear reactors. We don't want a meltdown. We have airplanes. We have self-driving cars in the near future. We have all these things that, and you get the concept of Internet of Things, which has been joked about the Internet of shit. But <laughs> you've got all this stuff. Actually, I haven't heard that, but that's funny. So. But you've got all this stuff going on, and we want our software to be reliable and work and not be bug ridden when we use it as consumers. So that was one of the reasons I was trying to get, what can we do? How can we participate? Are there any things and where can we find out where we're needed in the future? Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, I think you're completely right. You know, imagine hypothetically that as developers are writing code, we had some really cool way to anonymize, completely anonymize what developers were doing, what they were trying to solve and to put some kind of data about that up online for every developer in the world. You know, like when we look at baseball, we track everything about baseball. We track hits. We track all sorts of details about how the game is being played. And we do that because it provides people metrics in a way to understand the, you know, not just player quality, which I think is risky, but more crucially, information about the game. With programming, though, we, we sort of like just haven't gathered evidence. We're just sort of like throwing it to the wind. It's sort of odd. But if there was some way to anonymize it, make it not for the individual so it couldn't be used punitively, and like if it had properties that were desirable, the metrics were interesting and meaningful in some way, and we had it per developer across the world, not just in professional settings, but also for children learning in the UK or in the US or Germany across different human languages. I mean, imagine how much we could mine about that to try to make things better for the next generation of developers. But as it stands today, we really don't have that much information. GitHub repositories are wonderful, but they're usually done by uh, people with more experience. But on the other hand, as we're moving toward computer science for all, sort of this issue where we've got children working, well, we need to know information about that too. And those people can be very different. You might have blind children or people with motor impairments or other kinds of disabilities. People with learning disabilities might be impacted differently by different kinds of languages. There's a lot of issues that need to be sorted out, but we're not really going to get there unless all of us find a way to contribute to this broader evidence base to try to make an impact on the design of the human factors issues here. So yeah, I really like what you said. That was That was well said. And that just brings up another thing I was thinking about earlier when you were talking about the studies about the compiler errors and how that's one of the well-researched, more well-researched things, but it almost seems valuable that if that compiler could turn on and say, hey, we would like to correct anonymous information about the types of errors that you encounter from our perspective and then be able to report those back to a central server where they get aggregated in computed of saying, okay, we've got a bunch of these things that unexpected end of file or missing semicolon or whatever it is, or even some of these fancier compilers like Elm where it's, hey, you put this in, we think it means this, 
<laughs> right. We've got these kind of errors, and this is how frequently the different stuff occurs. And it sounds like that would be something that would be immensely valuable for anybody who's either working on a compiler or going off and writing their own language with a compiler that may say, could we collect these kinds of errors that we can actually know as a programming language and maybe even a larger community to say, these are the kinds of things people get stuck on. Absolutely. I mean, when we're working on the quorum programming language, which we're releasing a new version of pretty soon with 3D gaming in it, which should be fun. But um, anyway, when we are working on our tools, man, we mine the research that's been done on compilers to try to make it better over time. It's hard. I mean, uh, the unfortunate thing that I think that uh, I think is funny about this whole issue is that once the programming language community starts gathering evidence, which hasn't really happened yet, then what they're eventually going to find is that science is hard and that even once you have data, figuring out what it means is actually quite a difficult thing to do. And as such, like even for the data that exists, sometimes it is hard to know what the right trade-off is. You know, for example, with this static versus dynamic typing debate, well, we know that it has an extremely large positive impact for people by year three of experience, but we know it has a small negative impact for people when they first start. So then the question is, as you're designing a programming language, what's the right trade-off? And so we've made our decision on Quorum, which is static typing. We have some inference under certain places, which maps to token accuracy map data. But on the other hand, like I can completely imagine someone looking at the same evidence and maybe making small differences depending or wanting more evidence in certain regions to know for sure about certain decisions. So, you know, it is funny. I think that this is a problem that's going to take a long time to solve. And the more data we can bring to the table that's reliable and replicable, the better. It's the big data problem, but against ourselves instead of against our users, because <laughs> we are our users of our software. Exactly. I mean, I'll tell you, so over the last two years, I rewrote the compiler for Quorum in itself because I'm forcing myself to use my own stuff because, you know, I sort of feel like it's a good test of whether your theories are working out. And, you know, two years ago when I was using everything, it was really hard because even though, you know, we had studies on syntax and semantics and stuff like that, at the end of the day, the technical aspect of the compiler wasn't as mature. Whereas nowadays, a couple years later, now that we've been dogfooding everything for so long now, it just gets better over time. And the same is an issue with data in terms of understanding the human factors impact. It's going to take a long time to sort of sort through all the issues that are there. And it's going to take both the data in a reliable format and the experience in knowing what it means. You know, it's just going to take time. It's going from data to knowledge, which is connecting those things together to wisdom, which is actually understanding all the different links around it, right? Yes, <laughs> exactly. So we've been going for a while and don't want to go too far over our time that we've got today. We've already been going a little bit more, but I think it's been valuable and I'm hoping everybody listening will be valuable. But we kind of talked about how we can participate, but how can people keep updated, keep apprised? Where can we find out? what's going on, some of the latest trends, where are some of those things that we can learn from or just be aware of where things are going? Is there, you've got your research page. You mentioned a couple of other people that are doing this. Is there a place where we can kind of go and circle that up? Or is there a general hub for some of these kinds of things? How do we keep updated with what's going on and stuff that comes out as it comes out? Unfortunately, there isn't a good place yet. 
And we are working on this. This is something that is an active topic. So I'll give you an example. There's a number of people that are actively trying to make some places where people can do this. One is, I'll tell you right now, is programminglanguageusability.org, which is something that we put up with Brad Myers at Carnegie Mellon, Philip Wadler who was helping with this, Margaret Burnett, Oregon State University, Auntie Johanna Kajanaho from Finland, Stefan Hanneberg from Germany, and Lynn Turbach of uh, App Inventor fame uh, from, I think he's on the East Coast, but I forget exactly uh, what school it is. But anyway, programminglanguageusability.org has some stuff on it. However, there really needs to be a site that can keep a lot of this stuff up to date. And it's something that me and especially Stefan Hannenberg are actively working on, but it's going to take us some time to put it together. So unfortunately, it's a stay tuned type of thing. And if anybody wants to help with that, I'm sure they can reach out and contact you and volunteer some of their time as a kind of an open source project contribution, whether or not it's actually open source, but just here's something I want to be involved with to help the community. I could reach out and contact you if that fits my needs? Uh, I guess it's possible, although I don't know exactly what they would do yet. There's not that many studies. It's just a matter of kind of like, well, yeah, actually, I guess maybe, because I guess as they keep updated and stuff like that, they could always send us stuff that they think fits to add to it. So, Or it's possible what we could do, too, is we could put some of this stuff up on the Quorum website in terms of the various content, and then people could contribute to it in some way. Yeah, I'll have to think about it, but that might be possible. And I wasn't sure if it was just even the central website and help maintaining that and keeping it up and running and making sure that it's organized appropriately and indexed and things still like links don't break if the paper changes and keeping archives or whatever it needs to be. Yeah, you're right. Because at the end of the day, it's going to need to be a effort like that over time, because as the number of papers begins to grow, which I think it will in terms of the scientific rigor and evidence standards, we would expect that we would need to see, keep some kind of organized thing in order to make sure that people are apprised of what is actually known. Yeah, you're probably right. We we'll probably will need to do that at some point in time and make sure that it's updated and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, you're probably right. But if people are interested in that kind of project, they should contact you? Sure, why not? So we've covered a lot. Is there anything else we haven't covered that you want to make sure people at least know about? Do you have any other upcoming appearances? I know you've given a couple of presentations at other conferences, but where can people find out more, keep updated, anything that you want to like track you down? Where can <laughs> Well, given my email history, I might not want people to track me down, <laughs> but um... or at least or at least your research, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Let's see here. What do I have going on right now? I've actually, because we have our, uh, so um, every year we do one big release of our programming language technologies, which is the Quorum programming language that comes out in about a month or so. So because of that, I'm actually not doing almost any appearances right now because I'm kind of in software development mode to try to get everything sort of up to snuff on the technical side for this next release. There is talk of doing some other conferences uh, next year, and I do apply for this stuff once in a while, but right now I'm kind of on the down low, just writing some papers and doing stuff like that. So that's not a very exciting thing. Maybe I should apply for Strange Loop again next year or something. But So right now, there's not much you can do, actually, because I'm sort of sitting in my hobbit hole and writing papers and things like that. But on the other hand, I have to do that, too, just because that's the only way that the papers get out there. So it's sort of a balance, I guess. 
It's one of the downsides of academia is they don't always get as much time as I would like to go out and talk to the community that I actually care about the most, which is the development community. So that's not a great answer. Sorry. <laughs> so, Oh, you know, there is one thing, though, that people could do. So every year we do have a conference as well, and that is it's called EPIC, the Experience Programming and Quorum Conference. And if software developers want to go to it, they can absolutely apply. This year, we're mostly full already. It's in July of every year. It will either be in Washington or Wisconsin next year, hasn't decided yet. And we usually go over a lot of the evidence that's coming out in the field. So people that want to learn about that can come. Uh, but there's also a lot of teachers and such that come to that to learn quorum and do stuff like that, too. So one place that I'm always at is the annual quorum conference every year. So that's actually one possibility I hadn't thought of. So because we, we try to keep it small, we don't want to grow quorum too quickly because we want to make sure that as quorum gains additional adoption, that we have all the technical stuff we want exactly how we want it. And that as we make changes over time, it impacts people the least. And so anyway, that's one place though that people can learn more for sure. So, And that sounds good. And I'll get at least some links to that so people can find those presentations and conferences to at least just keep apprised of what comes out of them. So we covered a lot. Is there any call to action that we missed that you want people to act on after listening to this episode? Well, sure. There's one other thing. So since we are releasing our programming language technologies pretty soon, one thing that always helps us is whenever that comes out, there's always some developers that email us and give us good constructive criticism of various things, the different API designs that tell us like their thoughtful views on language design features they'd like to see and stuff like that. And so if people want to, I would strongly encourage folks to join the mailing list for Quorum, which is uh, you can find on our website, which is just basically a Google group. It's under the developers tab, and I'll make sure that you get a link to the Quorum Google group. But if people would like to, please feel free to join either the Google group or the Facebook page and send us information that might help us know either what to test in the future, like what experiments they think would, the community would find valuable or that professional developers would actually want to know more information about, but also help us with the quorum side, not just not just constructive criticism, but if people want to contribute on the technical side as well, they're certainly more than welcome to. So we do have a strict evidence standard for the core syntax and semantics, but we're always looking for more APIs on various kinds of topics, and we're definitely happy to work with people on that stuff. We do it all the time. So yeah, if anybody's interested in that, that would certainly be helpful to us, but also helpful to the community that we work with, too. So we certainly wouldn't stop people. And then where can people find you? Is just your university page the best place for people to follow and go along? You mentioned the Quorum Google group, and where's the best place to find out new things as you discover them? Whenever I put out a new study myself, I, always, I always, almost always post it on the Quorum Facebook page which is facebook.com slash quorum language. So that's just our studies. Sometimes I do post about other studies that come out if they're rigorous and scientific. So if people want to follow that, they're certainly welcome to, and I, I post stuff on there. I do also post our studies on my personal website, but all I do is just put up a link so it's not very conversational. For that Facebook page or the, the mailing list are probably the best bet for getting more information. Or if people want to email us on the mailing list too and ask questions, that's certainly fine. Because like 
understanding the evidence is actually complicated. And so we, we do take questions on that all the time and it's totally normal. So, And I'll get all those in the show notes. Okay, great. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. Once again, thank you, Andreas, for taking your time. It's been enlightening. It's been interesting to see some of these myths that we have not necessarily debunked, but that they are actually myths and haven't actually been proven yet. And what it takes to actually prove some of these things out instead of just touting them as fact and as is from the legends as they've been passed down through the ages. So <laughs> I'd like to thank you for giving you that time and sharing that with me and the audience as well. So thank you very much for giving your time today. No problem. And thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure talking with you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.